Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my lovely bride insists that I say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open. And my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, I am waiting for you all to come join me in the chat room. We have a great conversation. I actually, actually made some really good friends through the chat room, so it, it's a cool place to come ha- hang out, learn a bit more, share your ideas. So do come join me. That's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I would like to spend a moment reflecting on the nature of being human. What exactly does it mean to be human? Is being human something physical, mental, metaphysical, all or none of the above? What if tomorrow technology made it possible to connect our brains to machinery that would potentially exist indefinitely? Without our bodies, are we still human? What about our feelings, emotion, and senses? What about our soul or spirit? Does it all reside outside of the body, or does it enter, as many say, at a certain stage of our development? Would it remain with the brain and inhabit the machine, the robotics, or cyborg sort of contraption that we would be then housed in? This week I posted a story from Science Daily on my Facebook page, and I hope you'll all join me on Facebook. The title to which is very telling, quote, Cyborgs closer to becoming a reality of human evolution. Close quote. Picking up a couple of additional quotes from the article, this is the gist of the story. Our world is a continuously changing, complex system, and humans are a part of this ever-changing system. Within this framework, human evolution is an ongoing process that shapes us now and will shape us in the future body and mind. We must understand it in order to survive and be able to direct it to our advantage. The advent of brain-machine interfaces may force humans to redefine where our humanity lies. It will blur the boundary between human and machine. Close quote. Our technology is often raced ahead of our philosophical grasp of the ramifications implicit in the impact technology can have on our view of ourselves and the world around us. We can easily become mired down in debates about life itself, as with a whole matter of stem cell research or human clones. Have we come to a place in our evolution where the meaning of being human is a matter of mind, the preservation of mind over species, Or is the preservation of mind the same as the preservation of species? Mind connected to machines does offer a new explanation of eternity. Is there a need for metaphysics here? Or will we see yet another religious twist, one that touts perhaps the co-creative power of mind to create not only a new sense of what eternal may mean, but to begin further advancing technology to create life itself. After all, the great creation stories essentially say something like this. In the beginning, there was only God, and God divided himself, creating all things. Do you know how many billions of cells you are capable of using to create your own clone? Should we decide that this, too, is the direction of human evolution? I have spelled out many of the new technologies that interface man and machine, mind and computer, and so forth in my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. Believe me, as the article in Science points out, and I quote, 
we are becoming increasingly dependent on such devices, technological devices, and it can become easy to think of the body as a kind of machine with parts that need repairing. Close quote. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? I find it all really intriguing. When I fir- when you first talked to me about this, it's like, what do you mean about mind and the species being different? But then it's like, you know, you're right. Homo sapiens sapiens, two legs. Is that what makes us human? Uh, you know, no. Obviously, the mind is important, but can you separate the two? I find it really interesting. I think the way technology is advancing, it is something that we need to think about and decide what it is that's actually important. Um, but I find it scary, too. It's like you, science fiction right now. You can see merging of technologies with artificial intelligence and means to enhance our own intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, ways that you know we're able to access the entire Internet uh, without having a computer. Uh, so we really don't need to learn anything. We can look it all up. Uh, you know, conversations about harvesting organs, you know, clonal capacity for the purpose of harvesting organs, cyborg technology. Some believe this is indeed the next step in human evolution. And I agree with you. It's it's a little disturbing. (laughs) A little bit. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Tricia Robertson and we discussed her book, More Things You Can Do When You're Dead. Matt Irishman wrote, Hi to the wonderful Tricia from her number one fan in Glasgow. She takes no nonsense from anyone and doesn't suffer fools gladly. So when she says there is genuine, credible evidence to be had, and she warrants our attention. Laurel wrote, Feeling is the language of God. Love her quote on that. I wonder how much feeling there is if you're a cyborg. Interesting. Richard wrote, Does all of this lovely life after life stuff apply equally to those who are deeply impoverished and suffering in this world? Dennis wrote, Enjoyed your interview with Tricia Robertson. Interestingly, As I was beginning to download this episode, I looked to my left and saw on my piano bench her book, Things to Do When You're Dead. I enjoy her work and personally think she's credible, especially since many of her conclusions about consciousness surviving physical death comport with Dr. Michael Newton's research. She does a good job of withstanding your devil's advocate cross-examination style. Okay, (laughs) I, I hope that that's not how it comes across, but... Interesting, Dennis, especially since Newton informed us on this show that we may live lives as animals, especially dolphins. And Robertson informed us that she didn't believe we could ever be an animal of any kind. Moving on, last week's THINK spotlight led to many letters. Carla wrote, Eldon's THINK acronym could be applied to ethical organizational communication. Thomas wrote, unfortunately... Frank Kind, Frank Kindestein. Now that's an interesting. I like that. Frank Kindestein is in vogue now. Speak your mind, no matter what the consequence. Your admonition is timely, but what can you do about people who can't think? Connie wrote, "So timely for me. Unfortunately, I had a brain glitch a couple days ago and did not think before I spoke. Gratefully, my sister is forgiving and understands how stupid glitches do happen." I think that I need to pin the think before I speak on my forehead or something. Thank you for keeping us on track and sharing marvelous, helpful insights. You're very much appreciated. Diane wrote, such an awesome article. This is something I truly believe in. It is such a vital thing, thinking before we speak. I have found that these principles, when applied, are life-changing, not only for oneself, but for the others, and you have gone in-depth with explaining it. So that is truly understandable. I thank you from my heart for sharing such a profound message. Rub Saul wrote, Your work has touched me in many ways, and I think others need to learn about it. Well, thank you. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you again for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate you. Now to this week's show. Aware, awake, alive. 
a contemporary guide to the ancient science of integral human, <laughs> sorry, integral health and human flourishing with Elliot S. Dacker, M.D. Carolyn Miss had this to say about today's guest and book. Quote, the author's personal wisdom, professional knowledge, and mastery of the sacred teaching ensures that this book fulfills its promise to lead the reader into a deep and more profound inner journey of self-awakening. So what sacred teaching trumps the science of our modern age, or are they now one and the same? We'll ask our guest about this today, so let me tell you a little about him. Dr. Dacker was born and raised in New York City. He received his bachelor's degree from Queens College and attended medical school at SUNY at Buffalo. His postgraduate training was completed at the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago and on the Harvard Medical Service at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston. He is a board certified in internal medicine. In 1975, Dr. Dacker began his medical practice in Washington, D.C. He served as a practicing internist, physician, administrator, and director of wellness and health promotion services for the Kaiser Permanente Health Care Group. In 1984, he established a private medical practice in Virginia. He began exploring and integrating innovative approaches such as meditation, imagery, yoga, biofeedback, and alternative therapies into his day-to-day -day work with patients. In 1996, he left medical practice to begin an in-depth study of the principles and practices of consciousness and health, an ongoing study of mind-body medicine, integral health, and human flourishing, which he pursued amongst the wisdom traditions of Asia. This unique education and the inner aspects of health and healing led to his most recent book, Aware, Awake, Alive. You'll love the book. He is a past fellow of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and a past advisory board member of the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Elliot Dacker. Glad to spend some time with you and with your uh, listeners. So let's get along with it. Okay, sir. Well, you heard today's spotlight, and you discussed the perfection of health and Darwin's theory of evolution some in your book. So what say you? Are we about to enter a new age of evolution where we become more or less some form of cyborg? And if so, what's your opinion about this phase of human development? Well, I think in many ways the um, human development now is not all that different than it was uh, thousands of years ago, the, um, all the technology aside. We still are uh, struggling, most of the people I see, with uh, busy minds and active lives that are out of control with um, emotional distress, one thing or another, uh, chronic disease, uh, and, uh, and so on. So the dilemmas of uh, the human condition I don't think have changed whatsoever from those that could have been described 2,500 years ago. And so we really are dealing with many of the same uh, issues, and my sense is that the resolution to that uh, is uh, not all unlike that uh, as it was uh, thousands of years ago. Now, we do have a modern science that is helping us understand the mind and how it participates in solving some of our uh, uh, problems, inner problems, and our physical problems as well. But this uh, information is basically elucidating uh, the scientific context for practices and for uh, inner work that has been done for thousands of years. So I actually do not, on a day-to-day -day level, uh, see a whole lot of difference in the kinds of things that we deal with now in modern culture uh, and those things that were dealt with a long time ago. All right, so it's just a different phase in how we're going to compensate for ethical or moral issues and... Uh, Perhaps we'll have a whole new diagnostic manual if we do have all kinds of metal parts surrounding us, uh, uh, describing all kinds of new uh, disorders of the mind. Is that more or less what you're saying? Uh, I think so. You know, people will often look at the teachings that we had thousands of years ago from the, the great teachers, uh, Christ or Buddha or others, and uh, the fact that they were teaching these things uh, back then because people suffered from the same disorders that people now flock to yoga and meditation and other such things uh, for. So if these uh, conditions weren't problems back then, then they would not have been teachers providing the same kinds of solutions 
that people are offering right now. So I, I, I don't think that uh, uh, we really see there, there is a lot of machine that's going to do for the human mind. The human mind and its complexities has to be worked with from the inside out. And the machines that we use are machines that have been developed from the human mind. Uh, they do not transcend the human mind. They really come from it. So they are always secondary uh, products of our experience. And whether we use those uh, those machines in ways that are ethical, healing, or unethical and destructive, again, has to do with the quality of our human mind. So it's really quite quite simple for me. I mean, I'm just an ordinary physician, and I see people still in my work, not as a physician in terms of physical work, but in terms of working with people's spirit, people's emotions, um, that uh, are not uh, uniquely different than they have been for human beings for uh, for a long, long period of time. So it's really quite simple. Somebody walks into the office, they've got a chronic illness, how do I deal with this, they're suffering, busyness, drivenness, striving, their stress, uh, an overactive mind, how do I deal with this? When it comes to dealing with these things, these are products of the mind, and it's only through the mind that one can deal with them. And so I don't find machines particularly helpful although there have certainly been many that have been developed for this purpose, biofeedback and other kinds of machines. So I don't see in my own mind that the human condition uh, goes goes through different waves culturally, looks contextually different, uh, but essentially we're all born with the same human minds that people have been as long as uh, humanity has had, you know, developed brain and developed frontal lobe. All right, well, that was a bit of a... I mean, I, I understand that I'm asking you material that's not covered in your book. It just, it, you know, come off the back of a spotlight and off of last week's guest where, you know, we talk about souls and, and animals. And I know you're a very spiritual person. Um, and so I guess when I look at these technologies fusing and I think about clonal capacity and, you know, developing clones and supposedly this is going on in Brazil right now, uh, for the purpose of, uh, you know, harvesting organs and, uh, you know, some of these issues just get kind of all muddy in my mind. And, and they tend to give rise to the need to, you know, develop kind of a metaphysics or a philosophy to go with it. I mean, if I read some of the Far Eastern, um, you know, documents, I, I read the Bhagavad Gita and, and I see what Krishna is coaching Arjuna to, as to his duty then I, I start questioning, you know, well, what, what kind, how do, how do we fit that in here? But if I'm understanding you, I think what you're really saying is if we get that peace, that, that place of tranquility in our mind, that centered sense that comes from practice meditation and the sort, these things, uh, they're matters of the fray. Is that more or less right? I think so. I think people generally, when they begin to get a, uh, a peace inside, a quietness inside, a sense of harmony uh, and interconnectedness with uh, the things around them, a sense of uh, intimacy, uh, a knowledge how to love selflessly. Uh, there's a great deal more peace, and there isn't a reaching out. There is really a reaching in, and such people really, I think of one of the things I hear early on in my, my courses, and it's, well, you know, I don't turn the radio on in the car so much or I don't use my devices so much. Uh, so many of these things are really ways in which we try to deal with the stress that we have inside. Uh, and the commercial market that markets to the busy mind, to the uh, desire that you're going to find happiness or peace or some new excitement uh, through this or through that, uh, creates a demand that uh, makes us actually think we have a need for these things. But when you see people quiet down and come home to themselves, you see less of a need uh, for the kind of consumerism and the kind of um, the things that really push uh, the materialistic uh, side of life. Yeah, uh, the materialistic side of life. This is what you see. So if you look at the wise people that you know, although we hear of in culture, or just somebody down the street, you see people that are quieter. They are sweeter. They're more content. They're not reliant on external things, and frankly, they're not as concerned uh, about um, issues that uh, really are not central to the wholeness of humanity and the wholeness of themselves. So there is a shift, you know, inward and away from materialism, away from some of these outer issues, 
and even in science, when you begin to see scientists, uh, as you see in Dalai Lama's Mind and Life Group, Western scientists who have really begun to understand the sources of so much of what they're trying to uh, demonstrate scientifically, you then see that uh, these people themselves have a more ethical approach, a more moral approach to what they're doing. Uh, and the whole process shifts. This is why it is so important for us to not be so fascinated with the look outward gaze and begin to uh, deal with the inward gaze. Ultimately, people want to be happy. They want to be happy. They want to be peaceful. And they look in the wrong place for it, which is outside. And as people begin to look inside, that happiness and peace gets fulfilled from a reliable and trustworthy inner source. And then you see something very different uh, than all the activity that you see in the outer world now. Some say, uh, Dr. Dacker, just to play devil's advocate here gently, that that's a form of escapism or solipsism where we're just so self-focused that we don't find a duty to behave in a given way in the world. We're more focused on having our own sense of peace and balance, and so we'll shut off the outside world, we'll shut off the needs of others who don't have that, etc., and so forth. And yet, you know, you can look at the life of the Dalai Lama, you can see he is very politically active, yet he also has this countenance, this special countenance of peace about him. How do you balance that, sir? Well, you balance it by understanding what it is to uh, go inside and begin to have an inner life. Uh, in Western society, of course, you take meditation and you take uh, something like yoga, which are taken completely out of their huge context and away from their central meaning, and they become relaxation techniques, and that's what's marketed. Here's something else, another technique, another tool for self-improvement, for relaxation, inner peace for yourself. Um, that is not what these traditions are about. That is not what meditation is about. That is not what yoga is about. So there is a, a distortion and a misunderstanding and a really detour often in these learning these processes from what the essential goal is, which is develop a sense of selflessness, of wholeness, of compassion, and love, and interconnectedness. This is uh, what the purpose is, but it often stops, and I'm feeling better because it's another self-improvement tool, another method, another practice that we add to our whole list of uh, practices and remedies uh, from drugs to relationships to materialism to meditation to yoga as it's taught in the West that are there simply as uh, uh, ways of um, solving for the moment uh, some of the immediacy of the problems of Western life uh, or of human life. And they don't work except in a temporary way because their goal isn't uh, self-centeredness. Their goal is, in fact, other-centeredness. So this is the problem. So the question is, how do we in the West begin to get to the core teachings, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism or any other tradition, they're all the same. How do we get to those core teachings? How do we integrate those into our lives? And how do we fall away from the tendency to westernize and materialize every practice, every philosophy we touch? You introduced a, a wonderful question, and I definitely want to take it up in the next half. Um, but we're only a couple of minutes away from a break. So let me ask you this, the obvious. How did you move from traditional medicine to this holistic type uh, that you advocate today? Well, it was very, very simple. That, that I had practiced for 21 years, and, and I, you know, I have, have good feelings about the Western medicine. We all used it at one point. Uh, that I began to look at both my practice and my personal life. I didn't feel that I was healing uh, at the kind of level that healing was possible in my professional life, and I wasn't particularly uh, happy at the level I wished to be uh, in my own life. And I felt that I needed to find the answer to both of those issues. How is it that one finds a place of deeper health, deeper peace, deeper happiness, and deeper capacity to be present for the healing of others in the world? And I did not feel that I could find that continuing the same work I was doing, but I needed to take a large space to find the wisest teachers I could find uh, and ask them, see what they did. Uh, and that's what eventually took me out of practice and took me to 12 years of really uh, studying in Asia. 
Now, I have a, a very good friend who is uh, a neurosurgeon, uh, a neurologist, excuse me. I have a good friend who's a neurosurgeon as well, but uh, Dr. Christian Ionescu, and uh, he incorporated the same kind of process that, that you're explaining into his life. And as opposed to giving up medicine, his words to me were, oh, then it made a much better doctor of me. Would you say that's the truth? I certainly think that that is true, uh, and I really admire people who do that. I have actually not given up medicine in my own view. But medicine is about the alleviation of suffering, and that is what I do. Uh, I simply do with the mind rather than with the body right now, but they are. All right, under- when we come back, we'll pick it up. We're speaking with Dr. Elliot Dacker about his life and book, Aware, Awake, Alive. It's a great read. To learn more about Dr. Dacker and his work, visit his website at elliotdacker.org. Okay, we have a video for you today featuring the work of our guests discussing intention. If you're listening on the dial, remember you can check the chat room out when you're next in front of your computer by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Elliot Dacker about his life and book, Aware, Awake, Alive. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some truly significant to them. Music psychology is a new hobby of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social disorder, social behavior. Social disorder, well, that too, I guess. All right. Um, We indeed often get some interesting self-disclosure from our guests when we play their music. I'm not so sure that's the case this time. We just played some of IZ's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Tell us, Dr. Dacker, 
how and why is this important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, I think uh, if one thinks of the the vision of somewhere over the rainbow, uh, one is thinking of a transcendent vision. Uh, what is this more to life? What is this a deeper meaning? What is this soul? What is this thing that surpasses our day-to-day life? What is it that we can touch that's deeper, more meaningful, and gives our, our life a certain kind of richness and feel and texture that's different than day-to-day life? Uh, and that is really what the essence of the inner journey is. Uh, it, people come to it because they seek more to life, or they see, see, seek relief from either mental suffering or physical suffering, and they see some, seek something beyond that. They seek a more to life, uh, something that uh, really engages almost everyone. So uh, this vision of somewhere over the rainbow, someplace beyond, something uh, that transcends our day-to-day experience uh, and, and gives it, therefore, a certain kind of meaning, is what that uh, a particular song uh, means to me. It's and very hopeful, that's for sure. And you All right. It. I've spoken to several physicians who've made a shift like you have, and they've unanimously reported to me that some of their colleagues disapproved, and uh, in teaching universities, they've even maybe had their tenor threatened. What's been your experience? Well, of course, I began this... Um, process while I was in practice, uh, in private practice, so I did not have a lot of the external influences around me. I do my meditation now, teaching within a hospital environment. I think that the reality is that physicians are not unlike all other human beings, uh, in that they have the same desires, the same quest uh, that their patients do, uh, and that is for this place of inner peace, inner happiness, this more to life, this end to the kind of stress and distress that's part of day-to-day life uh, when they're within an institutional framework and there are prerogatives within that institution that go against that, uh, one has to just stand there uh, with uh, what one believes and be that. And when people can see that, uh, then they um, uh, respond differently. We've had hundreds of people in our program, the normal people from the community and physicians from the hospital. And when they come, they sit like everybody else there for the same reason. So my concern is being able to be what it is we're trying to teach, and I think that's something that touches everyone in their life. Everyone has a moment of loss, a moment of suffering, and essentially there's something over the rainbow, something more to life. Right. And when you can touch that place, you see more of it. Now, how does it work itself into the institutions? Uh, from, the down, from the downside up. When you begin to see things like yoga and meditation, even in their more limited forms, uh, being normalized and uh, within our culture, uh, these things then become part of slowly the process by which we uh, change the uh, kind of view and experience of medicine in general. So medical institutions, uh, to a larger extent, are beginning to integrate, whether there were alternative therapies or, in this case, meditative and yoga processes, um, and the wellness movement, which is only maybe 30, 40 years old. So right. we, we are seeing changes progressively take place, even though these are difficult environments in which to create change. You hit on something I think is very important. I mean, many, many things that are considered to be alternative medicine in years past have entered mainstream healthcare, such as meditation, mindfulness, biofeedback for that matter. Do you see the day coming when attitudes, life beliefs, and the like also become a traditional form of health care? I mean, years ago, there was a study conducted by David Phillips at UC San Diego, perhaps you know about it, uh, where life beliefs regarding what a person believed they would die of was compared with what they actually died from. And there was an amazing and robust positive correlation. So again, you know, do you believe that traditional medicine ever will begin to incorporate this sort of counseling as well uh, with the other alternatives, in your opinion? Yeah, in my view, I think what will happen is that physicians themselves become more uh, awakened or aware of these uh, uh, um, uh, approaches to health and healing and that they will have the resources to refer people to uh, that uh, can provide these kinds of services as they send people to a psychologist or to a cardiologist now. 
I think it's probably too much to expect that if any one physician, given all they have to do and all they have to learn, is going to also master um, these kinds of uh, inner technologies. So, but if they're incorporated within a hospital setting uh, and they can be referred to um, uh, out of a practice, uh, then I think you have what you need, which is a people that are sensitive to it and encourage people to pursue this as part of their medicine practice. I also often say to people in my in my uh, courses, you know, if I wrote down on a prescription pad, uh, sit down quietly and do this practice for 20 minutes every morning, the chances of doing it are much greater than, than if I just asked them to do it um, because they see this part of a traditional medical kind of approach and a certain legitimacy to it. And I think that's what is slowly uh, becoming. Also, we see meditation now, mindfulness, otherwise, in schools and in, in, in right. employee settings. So I think slowly these things will become integrated, and slowly physicians will see the value of that and refer people to it. The same thing as they did with psychology. Psychology was a very outside uh, uh, process for, for, for decades before physicians began to see it as a normal referral source. So I think that's what's beginning to happen. And people that come to my course are often referred by physicians because of stress or chronic pain or other such things. So I think it's beginning to happen. You know, medicine, of course, has made leaps and bounds in my lifetime. I'm dating myself some, but I remember the family doctor that used to come to your house and, um, you know, when I was a small child, my parents called the doctor. He came to the house. We didn't go to a clinic. Um, and that family doctor took an interest in the family. Uh, and then we see all this specialization today. And, of course, you know, like I say, leaps and bounds in technology and abilities, what medicine can do today compared to what it could have done just 50 years ago is incredible. But do you think that we lost something when we lost that family doctor? That you know, it, it, it sounds to me like the very practice that you are carrying out now is more like that family doctor, where you you have the ability to understand the people, to get to know your your patients, your clients, and and to relate to them and to counsel or guide them. So again, I guess the question is: Do you think we lost something when we lost the family doctor? I do, I do. I think uh, the whole institutionalization of medicine. The uh, you know, most physicians are employed now by institutions, therefore their schedule, their life, etc., is controlled by those institutions. Uh, the training uh, follows a particular pattern and um, materializes of one's life in terms of one's thinking. So it is problematic on one hand. And on the other hand, I think the younger physicians that are coming through have had more experience with things such as meditation um, and uh, have more of a sense of psychology, have more of a sense of being present. So I think there is always a desire for that. And when you're in the hospital in the middle of the night in intensive care unit and you watch a, a physician, there is a lot of care and tenderness. Uh, unfortunately, the medical training system is such that it tends to really train that out of people. So I think it is problematic, uh, and yet there are many physicians who make an effort, but I think it's a problem. Isn't it? I mean, the, the whole third-party billing system, you, I, I, you know, I, I guess the new health care program, for that matter, based on the feedback I've received from a number of different physicians, this, too, seems to rob medicine of much more than the machinery, technology kind of an attitude that people are just rushed in and rushed out, and there are some things that will be done because they can be billed, they're approved, and some things that can't be done because they're not. And, and it's like you're being told how to practice medicine, isn't it? Uh, I think that's, uh, that's pretty accurate. Uh, it's a, a really difficult problem, and not only the, the patients that suffer from it, it's the physicians themselves that suffer from it. Uh, and so we have uh, created a system that really does depersonalize the process of the healing, which uh, makes it less effective and makes it less rich and joyful and present for the people that are practicing it. So I think it's problematic, and it's not only the institution of medicine. We see it in many other cultural institutions. 
So I think my guess is this is going to begin to shift from the bottom side up, and it has uh, begun that process. But it is a problem, uh, and uh, I think we have lost uh, certain things. We have gained other things, the kind of scientific acumen we have. But the cost of that has been the depersonalization of traditional yeah. uh, conventional medical practice. Okay, let's let's talk about your view on human flourishing because I I find that very interesting. Just simply, what is it to flourish? I mean, is this something that comes in some order like Maslow's hierarchy of human needs? I mean, flesh the idea out for us and square it, if you will, with the typical Western notion that incorporates materialism into the idea of flourishing. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Maslow because, as you probably know, his hierarchy of needs, which he developed early in his life, are basically psychological needs. Uh, and it was at the end of his life that he uh, wrote about self-realization and began to write about transcendent needs, which went beyond his initial uh, pyramid of needs. So it was a recognition, even on his part, that was something beyond just uh, the conventional psychological health. And what is that? Um, that is the reaching inside to know the authenticity of one's soul and spirit and to find within one's self a sense of oneness, of wholeness, of peace, of wisdom, of happiness that is simply residing there naturally within each one of us, and that reside, re, requires that we simply just reveal it the same way as the sun is revealed when the clouds split. And so this is human flourishing. It has these, this quality of a peace uh, beyond uh, understanding, of a happiness without a reason just exists because we are in the nature of ourselves, a love that is, that is other-oriented rather than selfless-oriented, an understanding uh, of the experience uh, of oneness and interconnectedness. Uh, when you begin to see this in people, uh, you begin to understand that this is the highest potential and capacity for human life and human existence. And it has a lot of names. Human flourishing is a translated uh, version of the name that Aristotle gave to it, eudaimonia, uh, balanced, harmonious spirit, but it's also called Satchitananda in Hindu, which is uh, existence, uh, uh, bliss, awareness. It's also called the Tao, the flow. It's called Christ nature, Buddha nature. These are the highest levels of human development. And if it's possible for a human, why shouldn't we aim for it? And if we don't aim for it, then we are stuck with the kind of conventional uh, diseases, the conventional life, the conventional stress that you have in normal life. The human flourishing transcends that. Say more to life that's possible for every person. You know, I love how you organized your book, sir. But for our audience, please unpack the idea of homework for life. I think you 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 were approaching that um, in, in your answer to my last question. So I'm going to ask you to just... You know, if I'm going to flourish, if I'm going to reach towards that that self-actualization idea, uh, if I'm going to find that oneness, um, obviously, I mean, I'm going to have to do something. If I want to get fit for a marathon, well, I'm going to run every day, and I'm going to I'm going to ride a bike. I'm going to do so. Tell us about life homework, will you please? Yes, I mean, it's a strange thing. We go to um, uh, school for many, many years to learn how to do something, how to be uh, successful or achieve uh, in the outer world. We develop uh, skills and capacities related to outer achievement. Uh, but bizarrely enough, uh, we don't develop or learn any skills in our educational, Western educational systems related to self-education education in ourselves, learning about who we are, uh, how we are, what we can be, how our mind works. And so the process of the homework, this is homework not to become an achiever in some particular area, but to achieve inside, to achieve a place of peace and stability and quietness and, and love and compassion. And to do this requires a study. It actually requires the same thing that any other educational program reply requires, which is... Um, study, reflection, and practice over and over and over again. And people will generally, because we not don't culturally get motivated towards that, uh, people will generally come to it when they've achieved 
a place of some level of distress or suffering in their life. They're having a loss of physical illness. They're in a transition, and they begin to open up, open up to the possibility that maybe life is not as they wished it to be. Maybe there's something more. And that happens in every physician's office. But unfortunately, most physicians don't know how to step into that teachable moment and say, let's look. Let's go inside a bit. In addition to the other therapies, let's begin to look at your role and what this could mean for you, uh, this opening, what you can learn from it, what you can grow from it. And then it's a question of giving homework. I mean, you have to be somewhat skilled in how you teach meditation, its aim, its purpose, its direction, uh, the obstacles, the problems, how you assign reading, how you help a person through uh, the early part of creating the habit, uh, how you integrate it into daily life with mindfulness practices around the normal things we do in life, listening mindfully, speaking mindfully, uh, how it's integrated into work. So they, there is a whole curriculum, so you could say, of really becoming a healthy human being and then going by beyond that that the flourish to one's fullest potential that has to be learned. It doesn't come out of the sky. You know, some people think that to meditate, I'm going to assume some pose, I'm going to turn off the lights, I'm going to burn some incense, maybe have a candle or something. Uh, I've been meditating for more than 30 years, and I find one of my favorite ways to meditate is when I'm running. Uh, what, what is your, I mean, when, you, when you're talking, when you're teaching meditation, do you let your, your people know that there are many ways to meditate? They can meditate when they're walking in nature and, and so on. Or do you think that it should be more ritualized? Well, I think there are many ways to, to um, practice this, the skills of meditation. You can practice it when you're listening to somebody and purely listening and bringing your mind back to the listening every time it wanders. You're practicing meditation in a sense. Being mindful is practicing meditation. Uh, but beyond that, um, there is a deeper awareness of the mind that does not occur simply because one is relaxed or because one has uh, become more mindful or more attentive. These are all preliminary practices. Mindfulness is a preliminary practice in meditation. It's not the end. When the mind becomes still uh, and stabilized, then one is back to a natural space inside within which one can begin to understand the deeper sources of experience, deeper forms of knowing, uh, and deeper ways of understanding the nature of self and the nature of reality. So you cannot get this unless you have the kind of proper instructions on how to explore the mind once the mind becomes quiet. So it's a little bit different than the experience of getting quiet uh, or more serene uh, through a variety of different methods, mindfulness being one, running being another. They're fine. But if one wants to go to really a place of understanding the human mind, which is the only way to transform, because otherwise you have to repeat the same thing over again. You've got to go to yoga class every other day. You've got to do this every other day to get that quietness, the peace. You haven't really learned and transformed the human mind so it naturally sits in that. So it is a much more developed process, uh, a progressive process of exercise and acquiring knowledge and experience that we simply just not familiar in the West, and we confuse relaxation, a temporary peace, uh, and ease uh, with a really permanent transformation of our understanding. I think your book does a marvelous job, by the way, at uh, dealing with the key elements of meditation practice and the stages and the progress that we go through as we develop it. We're about out of time. You you have a uh, institute that you founded. I'd like you to take about a minute and tell everybody about it, please. Well, um, through my website, if people would go to it, and you mentioned it before, they will get a sense of the activities that, uh, that we have, uh, which is an effort to try to expand and teach uh, the process of going inward and developing an inward life that is uh, one that prepares uh, oneself really to be a vehicle of, uh, of a better world and uh, better relationships and selflessness. This is the end. The end point is not self-improvement or self-aggrandizement. So uh, the, these elements are, are the elements we bring together, uh, which can be found on the website and in the book, and, uh, and, and other teachers as well. One has to be very selective when teaching, uh, selecting a teacher because 
You're going to learn according to how much your teacher knows. So it's really important, like a, finding a good tennis teacher, to really find a good teacher to, to teach the inward journey. This way you're really learning one time for a lifetime uh, the right way to approach human flourishing in an inner life. Now, that website is Elliot Dacker. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T-D-A-C-H-E-R dot org. Elliot Dacker dot org. If you're in the chat room, it's being posted there for you now. And, and I encourage you to visit the website. All right, sir. Your book comes with a delightful CD in 45 seconds. What can I expect from playing this CD? Well, it, CD simply gives one a audio way to hear the basic and fundamental process of meditation that is in the book, written in the book. So therefore, it will be me, my voice, guiding one of two meditations. The first is the basic meditation. The second is the loving-kindness meditation, also covered within the book. So for some people... Sorry, I'm going to have to stop you, Dr. Decker. We're just about out of time. The book is Aware, Awake, Alive. It is a great CD. This is a great buy. You can get it at Amazon, most bookstores anywhere. I want to thank you, Dr. Decker, again, for your willingness to, to share your work with us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay. Until next time, wherever you might be in this wonderful world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.